Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. You are here with your host, Auntie Vice. And today I am thrilled to have body image coach, podcaster, influencer, all around amazing woman, and has some of the best hair on Instagram right now. Danny Adams, you may know her as I'm a pound cake, and you know, because we're fat chicks on top, we love a good, good screen name. Welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? Hey, auntie. <laughs> it's good to be here. So first off, I got to say, I, I've been following your Instagram and stuff. Your hair is so impressive. And I know how hard it is. I have friends who have, have big hair and I know how hard that is to keep up. Do you want to give a secret to hair care? Because I have so many people who have I see going, well, what do you use for curls? I have no idea. No, I don't. It's just. Make it look cute. That's it. And be you. Totally works. It totally works. So you do so much stuff. And the reason I reached out is you are a body image coach, which is very specific. Okay. We have a lot of life coaches that reach out to do the show. And I generally don't interview life coaches because that title has very little meaning anymore. <laughs> but you are very specific. You're a body image coach and you are certified. So do you want to talk about what that is? Yeah, so a body image coach is someone who helps people uh, be well in their body and execute their goals. Um, and so well, help them go on a journey to meet their goals around their bodies. And sometimes people think that that means that um, I help people like on their fitness journey. And that's not what I do. I do anti-fat bias, anti-diet culture. Also, uh, the work that I do is around moving us away from a world of um, anti-Black politics around bodies. And so I, I I do it in all different kind of ways. When I first started uh, started out, I was I was doing it without being certified because I think there's like this um, this thing about helping people feel confident in their bodies, helping people feel powerful. But there was like some things I was was missing, like addressing the inner critic and discussing how our society plays a role. And the way that we see ourselves, not just mom, dad, and, and cousins, but also work environments and the larger culture. And I hope that we get into talking about some of the ways the larger culture does that. But And then I, I started to do some group coaching, group coach at LBGTQ centers for people living with HIV, youth. And a lot of the ways that I do my teaching is definitely rooted in Black feminism. So I'm a Black feminist and super proud of that. And so... Yeah, 
Um, and now I'm a coach. Uh, I coach coaches with some summer enemy and we uh, have the official body image coaching certification, which you can go to body image certification.com and you can actually become a body, uh, a body image coach yourself. There's, there's a lot there and I want to start to break it down because there's so much that's involved in body image right now. The, the national association for the advancement of fat acceptance just released their annual report on media and fat in the media. And the vast majority, over 17,000 articles, talked about the obesity epidemic, right? They found less than a thousand articles that mentioned body positivity at all, and none that mentioned body liberation. You work in a body yeah. liberation space. So let's talk. start by talking about the difference between body positivity and love yourself versus what body liberation actually is, which is what you work in. Yeah, I have a huge critique on body positivity just from day one. I never really subscribed to it, but it is a place where I found community. Uh, I have to be honest about that, but I've been a hard critic on it because I think that body positivity is very much so focused on love yourself and uh, put on that crop top. And, you know, and I, and I think there can be some value in those things, right? But I also think that we're being dishonest about how people may perceive their bodies. And, and the body positivity space is all about people feeling well, but body, uh, um, not people feeling well, but people liking themselves. And the body liberation space is about us looking at how society impacts our body, right? Like how socially impacted, how we're socially impacted, economically impacted, politically impacted, right? And then also takes it a step further that like people actually don't have to love their bodies, but their needs have to be met because of their bodies. And that's what, that's what I'm sitting with. Right. And also like, I'll be completely honest. I do want people to like their bodies. Right. Um, I do. I, I have to be honest, but I personally don't think it's, it's going to save us if we don't create a society that has chairs for folks that people aren't heavily policed because of their bodies that women are able uh, to have abortions because they want to. Like when I think of body liberation, I'm talking about people being set free and not being harmed because of the body that they occupy. And that's one of the, the bigger critique, especially with the number of the folks I've had on the show coming out with body liberation is it's really been co-opted by straight size white women who are on maybe like a size 14, size 16, say, now I love my body. But I just had a woman on um, who was a larger body black bottle. She said she's been completely disposed of now that white women have kind of taken over the body positive movement. Have you seen the same thing in your work um, where people don't want to address the systematic issues like racism, like poverty, and they just want to go, I feel great in my size 16 and my crop top. Uh, I feel like anytime you challenge the idea that body positive or body positivity create a space for you because they want to keep this social hierarchy and because capitalism is attached to this, right? 
I'm a social media influencer as well as an activist. And I think that I live in both worlds and I'm critiqued in both in both worlds. If I'm being honest, but critique is is not always bad. And so with being a social media influencer, there's this thing where you have to talk about body positivity or have to talk about bodies in a, a particular way in order to continue to get booked. Right. And so it's like, how do I make you smile today? But also a part of my job, I feel like as a human being is also to be disruptive and to in and disrupting di- disruption brings change and so uh the things that i want I, I like to pull out is like why when you use the hashtag body positivity it's a bunch of thin white women when we already have a society that has normalized your bodies right a- as the standard right as the muse that we all should follow and i found that to be a problem that we don't have solidarity around other bodies and it continues to further alienate fat bodies, trans bodies, like, you know what I mean? And so disabled bodies, we're not getting to a place where we can find other marginalized people, not just being represented, but getting the services and needs met and their needs met throughout like our society. And the reason why, like, thin white women are already sellable. And so in the, and so if I like, what's the, take a step back and say, what is the real critique I have is that our movement is an online movement and we don't have a lot of organizing happening. What I mean by that is outside of, I don't want to say a particular organization, outside of a few organizations, right? Because I don't want to be, I don't want to exclude anyone who is doing the work. I thought of a few organizations, and I mean very few. I'm going to be honest and say under 10, and I'm pretty sure I could say under five organizations. We're not like, we're not members of these organizations, and like, we're not patronizing them to do the work so they can grow into bigger social justice organizations for fat liberation. So that, let me give an example like, while we may have like one off advocates for women's rights, the, the, the fat space is like, most of the people with social platforms, they're not in the community. They're not speaking to legislators. We're not like speaking to doctors. Well, some of us are doing this work. There's power in numbers. And I think when we talk about like movement. I think what fat community means is like online space and other marginalized group are organizing themselves differently. So part of this, uh, body liberation run, runs up against some barriers because you have to address capitalism and racism when you address body liberation. And those are conversations most folks aren't ready to have. Mm-mm. So when you're working in this space, one, it's exhausting because you keep having the same conversation over and over. You just acknowledge that. But how do you bring people to a point where they can talk about these topics that can be so sensitive to so many? Ooh. Hmm. This is an interesting question. I feel like you just got to have it, but also supporting the people that are doing that work. Like I, I, I support NAFA. I share their things. I, I talk to people about in my conversations around like what NAFA is doing, but also, you know, just like really having the hard conversation about around racism inside of the body image coaching certification program. Uh, there's two courses that I teach and then that summer and, and there's another course that summer and I co-lead the course that summer and I co-lead is like 
uh, how white supremacy is like embedded in the threads of coaching. And coaching is very white. And then we also have courses like the history of fat phobia, which I I was teaching before this, but I brought into Summer's program, uh, the program Summer that I created together. And then there's another piece piece of this, which is uh, bias training, where we talk about uh, where our biases actually come from, because we 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 everyone wants to feel like they're the best humans in the whole white world, but but there's a truth, right? And there's a disconnect, which is that uh, racism is embedded, embedded in our fabric, right? And so, uh, so is patriarchy, so is ableism, so is racism. I mean, so is um, transphobia. And so, if we do not speak about these things, that we're further harming people that we could literally be creating a a loving community with. And so, I just say it. And sometimes I don't, and I'll tell you why. Sometimes I don't say it because um, I think that oftentimes that black women, um, black queer folks, uh, we we are black femmes that we're often the, the the martyrs of a conversation. And I remember what happened at the Black Lives Matter. I remember this very specifically. Like I didn't see black influencers who are also activists getting compensated for labor what what i begin to see is like white influencers getting paid to make posts quite strange right and then and then is now it's back to business as usual which is really unfair so you uh there's a couple things i want to break down in that first is you know most of us grew up in in spaces where we weren't talking about the intersection of capitalism, patriarchy, fat phobia, transphobia, uh, racism. For you, when did the journey of breaking down any of that internalized stuff that so many of us carry start? And, and what kind of started you on the journey of recognizing how all of these things impact your world? Well, when you're born Black in America, there's never a moment in your life where you will not ever know that you're Black. As, as a matter of fact, there are so many studies that show that children understand race at the age of three years old. And so when you want it in understanding, like, I, rem- I just remember being in elementary school and like understanding that someone is treating me differently because I was Black. Now, I didn't understand like things that you see happening in Florida with the 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 governor, I'm from Florida, so <laughs> it's a real intense place right now politically. Uh, you, you don't understand the structure of it in that way. I understood my identity very well. In middle school, I understood being fat so much so that I co-created a, a club in the sixth grade called Eat or Die. It was for fat people to convene. And, uh, and it was that was a beautiful time in life. But um, I say all that to say I think I got my real deep political understanding, like many folks in, in your, you know, your early 20s, your, your 19. If you go to college, you meet people who are like deconstructing society. I think I, because I have parents who um, and family members, like my, my family was very much so uh, community activists. My, my parents were advocates. So which is in a way different. So I was always around like understanding uh, different power dynamics, but I would say the language and the the work came from social justice communities that I was a part of, like organizations like Dream Defenders, uh, which is, is a social justice group that works on 
uh, race. And now they're working on um, issues around student loan debt. And so uh, lots of fat people, not that fat means poor, but lots of fat people are in, in, you know, in poverty. And so, yeah, that, that is the way. But I think that the way that other people get into this work is, I believe if you see, I believe if you see yourself as connected to other people, you will want to, at least I will hope, <laughs> that you will want to figure out how do you make the world better for them? That's, that's what I think about. Now, I don't get it right all the time. I don't know all the answers. Uh, I don't have all the answers. That's why we all got to participate. But because I, I I genuinely do love people and I, I want to be in a community where people are living well and their needs are met. Like, it's kind of strange where that rent is too damn high and people don't have housing, you know, like, what's the problem? How do, how do we work on this? Fat people experiencing discrimination because of housing already in a place, time where people can't afford rent is crazy as hell. You know, we had Johnny Tillman back in the 60s organizing in California as a fat black woman talking about the inequalities of housing. And here we are, right? Black and fat people are still experiencing the same level of discrimination. And I think it's like, it's telling that we all must get to work and, and really open our minds. So one of the things that struck me about that, and when I was you know going, digging through the history and stuff, so I could adequately interview you, is you started the Eat or Die Club in sixth grade. Like, I can't tell you how much I love that. What was the response? And and how did it even come to be? Because sixth grade, you are in you're entering puberty. It is rough. I would not go back to be in sixth grade for love or money. And so to take a stand like that and be different at that time is really remarkable. Like, how did that come about? Oh, okay. I can wait. Yeah. Don't, don't even worry. Um, it, it's all good. <laughs> I got time. Got time. Um, where did you move to in LA? When I was in, in middle school, uh, it was funny. Like I, I kind of feel like I've always had a desire to hang around fat people. And in middle school, I went to a school that was kind of segregated, to be honest with you. There's a longer story about that, but I was often the only black or one or two blacks. And so when I got to middle school, I was like drawn to fat people. Even now, most of my friends are fat and dark skinned people just like me. I don't know. It's just keep happening. And so, uh, I mean, I don't know, like we were being bullied at some point, but it's this, this weird thing about, I'm still processing about my younger days because I was popular but also picked it. It's this, this strange thing that was happening. Like, it was like, you're the cool fat kid, but I'm going to tease you. Like people, uh, the football team called me Panda, like as a, as a nickname. So it was like a joke. So anyway, uh, being in middle school was just like, we wanted to find community. We used to dress up together, meet at the bus stop. Some of us were car riders. We would meet at the, like the bus ramp, I'm sorry. And we'll be having on our matching t-shirts and we'll walk down the hallway together and everybody would be looking at us. And to believe it or not, it was only one person who wasn't fat and it was the tall girl. She was like six foot. And so we looked like, well, you know, uh, the 10,000, you know, the number 10,000. But we were cool. We were having the time of our lives. And believe it or not, we're all still friends to, to this day. That's phenomenal. 
so one place that, you know, kids are very aware of body size and body differences and everything. And we bring in fat phobia and we teach it in schools, right? In all sorts of ways. And with kids back in school, especially as we come up now into the holiday season where people are bringing treats into class and, and all of that fun stuff. What would be your advice to people who have kids in school in how to navigate that space? Um, because there's quite a bit of fat shaming that still goes on in, in K-12 today. Yeah, I have a niece and nephew. They're three and five. And none of my nephew's five. He is like now talking about body size. And so and 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 also race. Uh he's like really talking about it a little bit more. Um, so what I would say is to be honest, right? That we're all differently, we're made differently. And like I think that's the thing, because difference is perceived sometimes as the opposite, making one better than the other. And I think we have to talk about difference as in like difference is neutral. Right. And it doesn't it doesn't have to it doesn't have to be a hierarchy. Um, and so I love to teach my niece and nephew new vocabulary words all the time. And so I talk to them about fat and like what it means to some people and what it means to others and like how to not use the word as a as a derogatory term. And then also because. Right. As we're talking about being pro-fat, there's still some people who use it as a word to disempower and to to, uh, disenfranchise other folks. And there's this other piece where it's good to talk to young people about their bodies. Right. Like how they feel about their bodies. And, you know, because we, we forget that young people have feelings. And that they're also growing up in the world that they don't understand. Hell, I'm 30. I don't get the world sometimes. And so it's it's important to be honest, but also finding literature, books to read about bodies, and also books that have diverse bodies. One of the reasons I created my journal is because I wanted... Some people say my journal isn't diverse. I think my journal is hella diverse. It's it's different shades of, 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 of brown, dark skin, uh, and, and and black folks with different abilities, being disabled, also being bald, being queer. Anybody could be queer on the cover, right? And like, there's no way to be queer. And, and also um, having folks who are Muslim on there. And it's really, I, I wanted people to see that we come in different ways, but also young people. I always speak at different youth events. And one of the things I love to give, do some giveaways and give young people that. And they feel so proud, no matter what their background is, they feel so proud of the art, artwork. Um, and I, I think that sometimes we just, we, we want kids to read the same books and we have to give them different literature and we have to find people who are like them, but also different than them and put them in community with folks who are different than them. I'm going to tell this story publicly and uh, someone might be upset with me, but it's it's off on a tangent, but it's important to talk about. One time I was at this, this event and I uh, won't say the specifics. And I, these white people were off. I was the only black person in the room at the moment. were off talking to themselves about mission trips. I was minding my business because I knew I had a different opinion. My back was even turned to the conversation. And they said, hey, Danny, what do you think? And I said, well, I don't like mission trips and I don't agree with them. 
And I gave them a reason why I said, I just find it strange that white people love to go to the continent of Africa and Caribbean countries or other countries where there's black and brown folks. And they like to take pictures with children that are not their own, post them on social media. But when they come back to America, their children don't know any black and brown children. It's quite strange. Um, And someone, this white lady, like burst into tears and basically, you know, you know how it goes. And, uh, but what I was trying to point out and pull out is, is is that if we do not undo the harm by making different choices, that we're going to be a part of the problem. And I think that's what we do for our kids. We give them a different reality. And that is so critical. And to understand how those two things are related, because I think for a lot of people, especially white folks, don't break down that this is how I'm, you know, going and co-opting this culture to make it look good for the gram. Yeah. But (laughs) in my own backyard. I'm not doing anything about it. And part of that comes down to classism is part of it too. And in so much of the time when we talk about body positive stuff, people say, yeah, as long as you're healthy and fat, you're fine. Right. And it, and lots of people think, well, fat must just come down to food. So let's have good food and healthy food versus bad food. So in your own work and in your coaching and stuff, how do you get people to start breaking down the understanding that there's not good and bad and it's about accessibility in different ways for food. How do you start those conversations with folks? Oh, you got a friend in me, you understand. Um, <laughs> um, Auntie Vice, it's really hard, right? And so I'll tell you why. Because we've been indoctrinated with good and bad food more than we've had the opportunity to explore the idea that food really isn't good and bad. Like some of the greatest examples, like white people posting like kale as the like superior green, green leaf. And, you know, collard greens is the food for black folks, but also it is the food of the South. But why do I have to eat kale? Why is kale more superior than collard greens? I just need to know. Or, you know, like, it's it's a very strange thing because it's food is not just about good and bad. It's also attached to like, what do white people like? And I think that's like a huge problem, right? It, it's, 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 it's wrapped up in whiteness. And then also there's this piece of class where we, we judge people for eating McDonald's, but we, we don't talk about like, do, do, do folks even have grocery stores? And, and, and when I, I'm not talking about the people who eat McDonald's, I'm just saying in general, do you have are you do you have access to a grocery store in Jacksonville? Let's talk about how racism is connected to body positivity in a minute, and I, I promise to circle this back. The shooting that happened in Jacksonville, where this white supremacist a couple months ago came in and shot up the the Dollar Tree and told the white people they could leave, and then he killed himself. He shot them up at a Dollar General. I apology, apologize. Killing two 19 year olds and a 29 year old. That is the only grocery store that that community had. Now is shut down because of the shooting. That's not a grocery store, okay? But that is what they had. And so, imagine what those uh, folks who are living in that community, what their experiences are like when they go visit their healthcare providers. 
And it's like, oh, you're gaining weight, but but do I have food? And do you care if I have food? I've had, because I've done some work with some physicians. <laughs> and the response has been to me, and that is not our problem. That is a public health issue. That's everybody's problem, right? It's, every, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a human issue that people do not have food. Um, and so there's this other thing I, I would like to add. I, I'm on the board for the picnic project. And there aren't many grants that are available for organizations who do bring food into community that don't have some type of red obesity attached to them, right? Even down to public health. I've also partnered with the Florida Health Department, also Seminole County Health Department. Obesity is like wrapped up in the, the, the way that people get grants. And so it's hard to decolonize organizations. Um, while there may be individuals within the organizations who believe in that, the nonprofit system is structured in that way, right? And so what has to happen is that our organizations, this is where I talk about uh, we have to move away from the online presence because how many of us, right? can start doing our trainings with these organizations on anti-fat bias, right? Like, it's strange. I see some white coaches now getting, like, major checks to train uh, things that they got from fat people, okay? (laughs) Language that they got, body positive language they got from fat people. So I think it takes us getting into community, having conversation, piercing into the fabrics of society, but also individually and I'll zoom I'll, I'll zoom out and not talk about the structures but also say uh, talk to people and say ask them what makes food good and what makes it bad in general right especially with the rise of everything and wages is not following we will be punishing ourselves forever because at this point we're at a point where most people are eating what they can. And and we have to be honest about that. And I don't think people should be shamed at all for anything that they eat. And not all people can eat lettuce. I I love to tell people that my mom is allergic to lettuce. Okay. It literally, she's, she has a severe allergy. I won't get into it. And so stop telling fat people to eat lettuce. Like, how, how do you know I can consume that? You know, at one point we had the pyramid and now the pyramid is not a thing. Remember, they told us to drink the milk and eat the cheese and all the things. You know, something a white man created. I don't know why we have to follow it for the rest of our lives. That's all I have to say. (laughs) And let's talk about what accessibility really means to food, because there was a report. It came out this week and it's showing that with the. Uh, removal of the COVID social support structures and like the extra money and food stamps and stuff, poverty has shot through the roof in the country again, because those were helping maintain people at a minimum standard. And right now the maximum food stamps grant per month for an individual is $285. Wow. You cannot eat fresh fruits and vegetables every day on a budget that gives you less than $3 a meal. Nope. So not only is it is it accessible, is it nearby, can you access a grocery store, but then can you afford what's in that grocery store 
that would fall into that. And then third, if you're feeding, especially if you're feeding kids and stuff, not every kid is, you're not going to waste the little money people have on food on things that your kids aren't going to touch. Because if you have, especially like neurodivergent kids and kids who are extremely picky eaters, accessible food may be those chicken nuggets you get from the grocery store because they're affordable and your kid will eat it. Um, and having those conversations, especially with healthcare professionals, is excessively difficult. Yeah, and it's because a lot of it, like what I learned, I recently spoke at the Florida Public Health Council a couple months ago. and. What I've learned is that they don't have the luxury to really go against what they're what they're being taught because they could lose their jobs. Like this is really a thing. This is why I say at the policy level, uh, we have to talk about anti-fat bias. <laughs> so when it's trickled down, because public health is a public service, which also comes from people, people write write this, right? Like <laughs> People write this out. They're writing about our lives. It's really sad. I've lived off food stamps. When I was in college, I ate at the food pantry quite a bit. Even as, as an adult, especially during COVID, I ate at the food pantries quite quite a bit. Um, and I mean, I, I just walked into a, a, a stable life, you know, be honest with you. And with the with, with everything that's going on, I hope I'm able to stay here, you know, just to be quite honest. But I think that most people have not experienced what it's like to live off of a little bit of money. And also there are something that's very like real and true. Like if you really experience hunger and you know, like when we talk about like eating disorders, it's like, we always talk about fat people binge eating, but never talk about like people like me who are fat and, and like, like food wasn't always around. I don't want to get into this like good and bad ideal of like relationship with food. The reality is I should have had food. My parents should have had food. And even to even qualify, but let's just say the $283, like people who are middle-class still need food stamps and they can't get it. And they also cannot afford to eat fresh vegetables, fruits and vegetables every day. And also I don't want to, and I don't have to. And like, that's, that's the, that's the other part. And I'm just going to speak to a group of people who get on my last damn nerves and those, it's those vegans. Okay. <laughs> As someone who, you know, doesn't eat much meat. Right. Like, I think it's quite annoying that we have made this, like, those are the, the, the go-to people for as the most health conscious people in our land. Right. And also it's very white, it's very problematic. And also like, just because you eat a vegan burger and you're white and put locks in your head does not mean that like you are living the experience of like folks who are marginalized, who really don't have access to food. And also I should have the right to eat what I want whenever I want. And I should have access access to it. And, 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 and access goes both ways. It's those who already have the freedoms should also have choice and access. And then those who don't, those folks like I talked about in Jacksonville, like they lost their dollar general, which only made it a grocery store be and, and not really a food desert because it had access, they had access to milk and eggs, not meats, not fruits and vegetables. 
um, generic chips, right? Like, let's be honest. I want the real Doritos. I don't want, you know, I don't want fruit wheels. I want fruit loops. Like I want the real thing. I want to be able to consume it. And I think folks should be able to have access to it. And also like thinking about like, just going on a tangent, I, I promise I'll be quiet, but like, you know, when you don't have access to food, let's just say you're lactose intolerant. Grocery stores like that do not offer soy milk. They do not offer uh, oat milk or almond milk or rice milk. You have to drink cow milk. Well, what if your your kid cannot assume that and that, that is what they have? Thank God for WIC. But when you don't have WIC, what do you have? And I think we don't think that deeply about food because a white girl on Instagram or a white man on Instagram is in the gym eating a protein shake telling you, uh, that you need to eat these things while they're getting rich and passing down generational wealth where their kids get to eat forever. And food access is so much of, it gets so targeted. It's ridiculous in this country. We have one in four children go to bed in a food unstable home. They don't know if they're necessarily going to eat that night. And we know that simply providing access to food during the school year will improve things like grades, right? Just not having to worry about two meals a day is an enormous help. And yet in this last round of budget negotiations, rather than cut military defense, rather than cut subsidies to oil companies, they cut access to food stamps. And so we're telling people you need to eat healthy and this is how you're not, we're going to combat the obesity epidemic, even though that's not a real thing. But we're also going to deprive 25% of this country of food. And that's where, you know, making not just fat people need access to food, although we do, everybody does. And yeah. it's the mar most marginalized that are the ones, they're balancing the budget on the backs of the poorest Americans when it comes to food access. When I was a young girl, um, in my city, there was this Winn-Dixie. And I remember a man stole a pack of meat and the employee chased him through the parking lot for the pack of meat. And I was thinking to myself, wow, even as a kid, like, how do we know he didn't really need that and just didn't have money and take that back? Like, where do people go? And we still haven't figured it out. And I, that happened when I was a young girl. And I never, for, never forget that experience. Um, and even just to grow up to actually be a person, right, who actually, who also needed food pantries. And as you talk about, like, um, the impacts of, like, young people in schools and getting lunch, uh, shout out to the kids who were on free and reduced lunch. I was one of those. But uh, which to, to, to take a pause, right, we talk about, oh, I have so much to say, but to talk about this, like, the free lunch program that is in the United States is... Because the Black Panther Party created the free lunch program and the U.S. government demonized the Black Panther Party, but created, but, but mimicked that program. And that's not the only thing, right? Like in the 1950s, and I teach this in our, uh, and I teach this in our body image coaching certification course. In the 1950s, uh, physicians in the U.S. said that self-care was important. Well, the 1960s and 70s, the Black Panther Party adopt, uh, adopted those practices and, and, and put it in as a part of like, this is the way that people are going to be able to live well if they have self-care. So from 
<laughs> from the black folks who who popularized something, right? They didn't create it, but they popularized something. And now it, it, when it was called self-care and now to see that like white people are the faces of self-care is quite strange. Um quite strange, but 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 to get back on the 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 food insecurity thing, um when you talked about young people uh in education, I I I created a I worked for a church for a while and I created an after school program. This church also had a food pantry is is served quite a bit of um houseless people. And I'm trying to remember the numbers, but it was it was 50 students that were there. That's what I remember specifically. And 23 of those students were D and F students. This is a true story. By the end of this program, we incorporated uh, parents, uh, parent meetings, which myself and my friend, we, 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 I always recruit my friends and something. We knocked on all the doors, introduced ourselves to parents. The other thing that we did was they got lunch, real hot meals. Well, I was working in the housing projects of those 23 students who were D and F students, they became on AB honor roll. And so when we think about how do we solve problems here, food is really in the threads. You know, my name is I'm a pound cake cake. My grandma was the cake lady of my community and cake brought people together when it was time to have a meeting. There was cake. My grandma had cake. And so people can be able to communicate and make everybody feel good. So I love food and I love when people love food. <laughs> well, and I, I love that you bring up that your grandma used it to bring people together because when you're fat, people really critique everything you put in your mouth, everything you put in your shopping cart. But food is so quintessential to culture and connection. And we need to be able to eat and participate in that. Telling us not to participate and not eat the birthday cake, not eat, you know, your your Christmas stolen or whatever you do is excising fat people from your culture. Yeah, it's also like it's not just like, you know, like anti-fatness, but it's like it's like racism really deeply like. And the reason why I bring that up is like, <laughs> I think about if you have money, which is most times white people do, right? Not all white people, but you know what I mean? <laughs> you could you could buy people other things. And, and the way that you uh, show love in a lot of black and brown cultures, it's like you, you bring food, you bring bread, you bring a, a pie or a cake. You know, in Haitian culture, coquito is, you know, you're going to share coquito. Uh, oh, sorry, primas. Coquito is uh, not Spanish. the right term right now. It's <laughs> Latin folks. I uh, hope I got that right. But 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 it's a big thing, right? Just the other day, uh, the lady in the co-working space, the way that she wanted to tell me thank you for being so kind to her, she's from Mexico, is that she she brought me bread. And I'm glad she didn't buy me a t-shirt or anything. I wanted the damn bread. <laughs> and it was sweet. And the and joys was- of bread. Yes. Through this <laughs> gluten adverse bullshit. If you're actually gluten intolerant, that's one thing. But please, carbs are not bad. Yeah. Give me the crusty bread. Yes, yes. And so, uh, you know, 
it is the most that when I think about food is the time that I, I enjoy people to mo- the most. I was a part of this program, this cohort for about two months. And every weekend, each culture had to cook their food. And so one night it was like South African food. I felt like I understood the people more when I experienced their food. It was one night, it was Latin America. And, you know, there was another night, it's African-American food. So we had soul food, right? And what I'm saying is that, like, I felt connected to them. And I I felt like I understood their people. Why? You know, it's not just, like, collard greens or black-eyed peas. Like, this black-eyed peas, is it, it, it came from the continent of Africa. My people hid black-eyed peas in their hair to come to America. You're not going to tell me that I cannot consume this, right? Like, this is the way that my culture lives on forever and ever. And I'm sorry, (laughs) white America, white people, but uh, I do not enjoy the cuisines of America as as the superior superior food. I don't. And also with that is that there's a story. And I would like to... um, Invite people to watch High on the Hog on Netflix. It's a story, a a lot about African-American food. And I am proud of my heritage. And I want to eat the food that I eat. And and I'll say this in closing. I I actually cussed some people out on social media before. (laughs) It's a true story. One day I posted raccoon on my story, which now I know like it's actually banned from like some social media as you can't post like cooking raccoon, but I didn't know that. And uh, folks were like, ew, ew, ew. Well, the story behind me is that I'm first generation to not be a sharecropper. My father picked oranges, okay? And I I, I didn't, right? And then that was the job. He dropped out at sixth grade. He's 65 years old. He dropped out at sixth grade to pick oranges and take care of his family, his brothers and sisters, and help his mom. There's another piece to this. My 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 family is also a uh, fisherman and women. I grew up eating fish. Now, some people say that was your poor meal. I didn't see it that way. We ate mullet. They sh- they you know those are the fish we ate. Then there's this other piece. Um, we ate raccoon, and they have to, they had to hunt for the food. I lived. I grew up in rural community. And so when people started shaming the food that I, I grew up eating, and I don't eat raccoon now, but if I had to, I will. And I'm not shamed. And I don't care that it's on the Thanksgiving table, right? And people were shaming. And I thought, wow, you know, like to shame food that is considered truly a delicacy for me on Thanksgiving and Christmas. Like someone hunted that in the woods to bring it to the table, to one, keep culture alive, to also, two, to keep a family fed. It was a huge problem for me, and I'll do it again. Um, You know, and I think that we have to think about what food means to people before we start being critical of it. I'll say this, and I said, I know, like, when I went to Mexico, uh, crickets, they were eating crickets, and I was like, okay, crickets. I tried it. It wasn't my thing, but who am I to tell the people of Mexico, that they should not eat crickets. Who am I? And that audacity is very uh, parental. And this idea that we should parent people comes from white supremacy. There's, I could do multiple episodes on that, especially (laughs) around 
nutritionist in this country because there's very few nutritionists I've met who just didn't turn disordered eating into a career. And it's very white, right? There's very few nutritionists who won't tell people, well, don't eat corn, don't eat beans. And for so many cultures, those are quintessential aspects of what you eat. But you did bring up Thanksgiving. We The show will come out right as we're starting to come up on the holidays. And that is some of the hardest place to be comfortable being a fat person and eating and enjoying yourself and dealing with families. So do you want to talk a little bit of how how folks can help negotiate those spaces? Because I know when I was coming home, you know, when I was younger, I'd come home for the holidays and my waistline was definitely a topic of conversation. So it's tough, right? Because these are people you love. This is an environment that you've probably grown up in, right? You've been indoctrinated, right? And and what my therapist tells me about families is oftentimes your role is set. Okay. You're who you are. Your role is set. <laughs> Uh, I laugh a little bit because everyone has that aunt that asks the, or uncle that asks the same question every time you see them. And you're like, okay, I answered that last year, but okay, you know, and this is the best we have with each other. Um, so it's hard, right? Like at the core, you may you 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 may deeply have a love for these people. So, and you know that in in reality, like they love you, but they don't know how to talk to you, and they don't know how to have conversations. So this is what I tell young people when I'm coaching. And this is what I tell my clients. Sometimes you have to teach people what to say. Uh, I don't like it when you say this about my body. Check. I like to be complimented on this. Check. This has happened in my life recently. I would like to share this with you. However, I do not want to talk about my body and I don't like this compliment. I think it is leading people to really understand you more, that you're more than your body, is giving people a chance to learn more about you, right? And it's also being honest and setting a boundary, like stop bringing that shit up. I don't want to talk about it, okay? It's just being, without saying it, you're saying it. And it can be hard, especially when it's coming from elders. I know like in my culture, like even if you're correcting behavior, you have to be careful how you say it and and, and, and not be, come out as disrespectful because one t- once I want to say that when you're fat, you often don't have allies in the room with your, as your family. So, and what your family most times will understand is disrespect as a unit. And so you will not be able to get them to a place where they understand that they disrespected you because the, they already understand you can't disrespect elders. So you have to, to get them to a place. And then if you cannot, right, get them to the place, set your real boundary before you go to the family gathering. Hey, I'm only going to be here an hour because I know after everybody eat, they're going to be doing this. Or I'm going to take my plate to go. Or I'm going to eat before I get there. I'm not eating, which could bring on other things like, oh, you want to diet? You know, um, and also if it's a space where you could go have other conversations with other people, try that option. And if you just know you got the family that just ain't going to let up, don't go. 
Start creating your own environments and community. And that's okay too. Like some events, you just can't go with feeling because they don't know how to act and they don't know how to talk. <laughs> yeah. As somebody who's had to cut off most of the extended family, yes. Yes. I got like one aunt and one cousin I talked to and the rest of them can, I, I've adopted by my guy's family because they get along. They're cool people, but not mine. Not mine. Uh-huh. <laughs> Luckily, he is great extended family. What are you That's looking forward to for the holiday season? Woo! Holiday season. Well, um, I am going to be approaching my one year anniversary as married to myself. So I don't know what I'm going to do yet, but I hope it's something that brings me a lot of joy. Um, and then I, I, I plan to get some rest. Like I feel like holiday season is that time you get some rest. It also is that time where there's a, like a lot of diet culture. So I tried to up myself a self-care. What else am I looking forward to? Well, I have my, my other platform, which we didn't get to talk about much in the app. It's totally okay, but I want people to go go check it out, which is Shine Wave. It's S-H-Y-N-E-W-A-Y-V.com. It is a social responsibility influencer marketing agency. And I want to see more influencers getting involved in social change projects. And I want to work with nonprofit um, philanthropy organizations and brands on how to work on uh, philanthropy projects. So, um, and get influencers involved. So it's, anyways, I say all that to say, go check it out and sign up to be a creator or to be someone who just support the cause. Fantastic. And yes, do go check it out, especially for those of you who fall into the creator or influencer levels. Please check them out. If our listeners want to find you, if they want to follow you on social media, if they want to find the great article about where you married yourself and all of the other wonderful things you have online, plug all your sites. All right. So you can go to amapoundcake.com, amapoundcake.com, amapoundcake.com. You can go there for body image coaching, or you can go there to buy my services. And then you also can find me on any social media platform. It's I'm a pound cake, AMA pound cake. Um, and I have, I believe, some of the articles tag. If not, I'll get to it. <laughs> and listeners, we'll have all of those links and more up on the show notes. Check them out. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, listeners, it's your Auntie Vice here. Do you like all the geeky, nerdy, history, factual, cosplay, sci-fi stuff that I bring up on this podcast? If so, you're going to want to check out The Geek History of Time with Damian Harmony and Ed Blaylock on all streaming channels. And now, a moment of gratitude. I feel, this is interesting. I am like grateful that I'm well. I like think about this quite a bit. And because I am downtown LA, like I see a lot of people who are houseless, but also like struggling with like having mental health issues. And I'm like grateful that I am well and that I was able to have access to therapy. 
so much so like, right, my community paid for my therapy. Now I pay for my therapy. My, th- my community paid for my therapy for two years. Um, and so I, I'm I'm grateful that I'm well. And like, I would not have been able to be who I am, doing what I'm doing, helping folks that I'm helping, living the life that I'm living if it wasn't for therapy and, and, and the fact that I was able to really do the work. So yeah, grateful for myself. I want to thank God for me. <laughs> Hi, listeners. Do you like my interviews with various authors? Do you want to center queer voices? Do you want to talk to other queer nerds about queer books, about queer people? Then you should join my new Discord server, the Big Queer Book Club. We meet once a month to chat about queer books by queer authors with other queers. And it's fun. Our first meeting will be January 17th, and we'll be featuring the book by Lamaya H. called Hijab Butch Blues. Check out the show notes for more details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.